Jesus owns the Psalms. Uh, they belong to him. They're, they're his Psalms. The rest of the Old Testament makes prophecies about Christ and says things that are going to happen to him. The book of Psalms, as you read the passages where that Psalm is fulfilled in the life of Christ in the New Testament, it's not so much that that Psalm is about Christ, but that the Psalm is by Christ. Whenever you go back to the Old Testament, wherever you are, in some way, Jesus is there uh, because he is the second person of the Trinity. He is omnipresent. Hey everyone, this is What Your Pastor Didn't Tell You. Today we're on with Dr. Shepherd. We're going to be talking about Christ in the Psalms, prophecy, additional meaning, all that kind of stuff. How do we understand the Psalms in light of Christ? Dr. Shepherd, how are you doing today? What can uh, what can you tell us about yourself, your background, education, and all that? Okay, right. Well, uh, first of all, very uh, happy to be on your uh, program, Zach. Nice to meet you. We've been dialoguing uh, over the uh, in um, uh, emails and messages, and now we see each other face to face. So, um, uh, as Zach has said, my name is uh, Jerry Shepard. Um, I uh, I am speaking here from. Uh, where I have lived for the past 30 years in uh, Edmonton, Alberta, Canada, but I am originally from uh, North Carolina, and um, I went to a small uh, Bible college in North Carolina, and then um, after finishing at the Bible college, uh, spent a few years doing various odd things, and uh, really had this desire to do a 10 seminary. So I went to Westminster Seminary in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, and um, uh, I took two degrees at that school. I got a master's in religious education, but for the most part, uh, the courses that I took were, were Bible courses, Old Testament, New Testament, uh, Greek, Hebrew, uh, etc. And then after finishing the master's, I began a PhD program there in hermeneutics and biblical interpretation. Uh, now, uh, I am, or I was for the, for the past uh, uh, 30 years, a professor of Old Testament. My degree from Westminster is not Old Testament per se. It's in, in the whole area of hermeneutics, how you interpret scripture and biblical interpretation. Uh, but um, uh, nevertheless, uh, I took most of my courses that I could in the area of Old Testament. Uh, near uh, At the end of my program, at the end of my courses, I began a dissertation under Bruce Waltke, um, and some of your readers may have heard of him. Um, but about, but partway through uh, my work on the dissertation, uh, he uh, left uh, Westminster to, to go to another school, and I finished up under another Old Testament scholar, uh, named uh, Tremper Longman. And uh, my dissertation title, and this is uh, part of why we're uh, discussing this kind of stuff in this program, my dissertation title was The Book of Psalms as the Book of Christ, a Christo or Christological canonical approach uh, to the Book of Psalms. So uh, anyway, after uh, uh, finishing most of my work on the PhD, I... Uh, uh, received an invitation to become professor of Old Testament at Taylor Seminary in Edmonton, uh, Alberta, and uh, took that, and so moved from uh, 
the States to uh, Edmonton in 1993, where I taught for 28 years. And I am now uh, emeritus professor of Old Testament, which is a way of saying I'm retired, uh, but I still have an office on campus. That's where I'm doing this uh, uh, video from. Um, in terms of uh, what I have written, I uh, uh, did write that dissertation. I never went about the uh, process of trying to get it published, uh, but I am now working on some uh, stuff where I would uh, hopefully uh, reproduce some of that material uh, in uh, some, some books to help in terms of understanding the Psalms. I contributed articles to uh, several uh, Bible dictionaries, including the New International Dictionary of Old Testament Theology and Exegesis. And I also continue uh, contribute a number of articles to the Baker Illustrated uh, Bible Dictionary. I've written two commentaries, uh, one on Ecclesiastes in the uh, Zondervan Expositor's Bible Commentary, and then uh, just um, published in the last year is a commentary that I wrote on Leviticus uh, for the Story of God uh, Bible Commentary. And I've also written a couple of articles on uh, violence in the Old Testament. And so uh, that pretty much is uh, my, my output there. And then just on a personal note, uh, I'm happily married now for 48 years. I have uh, three uh, grandchildren, uh, two, um, I'm sorry, I have three children, uh, two um, uh, children-in-law of their spouses, three grandchildren, and two grand dogs. So that's uh, my status. That's awesome. And, you know, those are some, uh, those are some big names. I did notice that you have Tripper Longman, Pete Inns, Vern Poitras. Is that how you pronounce it? Yes, yes. So you've heard of them before. Okay. Yeah, yeah. No, I was like, oh, man, these are the big guys. Yeah, yeah. You had yeah, the, yeah. yeah. What an awesome pleasure. That's so cool. Yeah, um, yeah. So like I said, yes. I started off the dissertation under Bruce Waltke, uh, finished. That's right. That's true, yeah. uh, Pete Inns was the second reader and uh, many, many professors at seminary that I really um, uh, took a lot of material from and inspiration and they were mentors in my life. So That's so cool. Yeah. So let's give us a rundown of, you know, pre 20th century all the, I guess, you know, maybe not all the views, but, you know, the main views throughout church history of, you know, how did people see Christ in the Psalms? Okay. Well, um, we are covering, uh, you know, 2,000 years of history here, but basically, uh, I think your question has to do with um, more, maybe the first few centuries of the, of the Christian church. And um, I'll just say a few things about that uh, without trying to get overly uh, long there. But um, first of all, I, 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 I guess uh, a number of the church fathers uh, interpreted things uh, quite allegorically. There was what was referred, what has been referred to as the Alexandrian school. Um, uh, the epistle of Barnabas, uh, Clement of Alexandria, Origen, and others. And they pretty much uh, took the tack of uh, taking uh, various passages in the Old Testament in particular, and, and allegorizing them, coming up with some alternate interpretation other than what we would normally think of as the 
the literal historical interpretation. And so they would, uh, as they interpreted the Psalms, they would interpret them uh, with reference to Christ, uh, with reference to the church, with reference to the individual Christian, and they would find meaning in the Psalms as they allegorized them and applied them to Christ and the church and the Christian. Uh, so that was the Alexandrian approach and is an approach that isn't uh, all that uh, popular in modern day um, historical critical interpretation or even in evangelical interpretation, but it does have a lot to, to, to say for it. It has a long um, history that went through the Middle Ages and um, I think uh, does um, at least sometimes have a great deal of merit. Not all, but we'll, we'll talk some more about that. So that was the Alexandrian approach. Other church fathers were much more uh, concerned with what they um, understood to be the literal meaning of the text and what they would allow for in terms of Christological interpretation is where they believed that either the, the, the psalm under investigation directly made a prophecy regarding Christ or that the psalm in a very real way uh, provided a typological uh, counterpart uh, to the person of Christ. Now, uh, some of these scholars were best known as being in the Antiochene uh, school. Um, perhaps the most famous representative there would be Theodore of Mopsuestia. Um, famously, he only allowed four psalms to be interpreted um, messianically with reference to Christ, at least in terms of of directly seeing Christ in the psalm as being prophesied. Now, he certainly allowed for other psalms to be used uh, in a kind of a typological uh, type um, uh, way of interpreting, uh, but uh, for the most part, uh, uh, those two schools were separate. The Alexandrians allegorized everything. The Antiochians wanted to keep things very, very uh, literal. Doctor, and then, me. yeah, sure, um, go ahead. Could you explain to those not familiar with it what you mean by typological? Yeah, um, just just to sort of show the distinction here, uh, with an allegorical interpretation. Um, um, there was a scholar named H.A. Uh, Wolfson, and he defined allegory as interpreting one thing in terms of something else, irregardless of what that something else was. So that meant that you could just um, you could just pull your interpretation out of the air. Um, and so, for example, Philo and Clement of Alexandria, uh, they interpreted uh, uh, Abraham and Sarah, for example, uh, and they interpreted Abraham, and I forget the exact way they did it, but um, they interpreted uh, Abraham as uh, mind and um, Sarah, they interpreted as being representative of uh, Greek philosophy, and, or, or, I, or maybe that was Hagar was Greek philosophy. In any way, they just took anything they wanted to and said, 
this is what Abraham represents. This is what Sarah represents. This is what Hagar represents. This is what Isaac and Ishmael represent. So that's allegory. Type, typology has more of a um, searching for something very historical that connects the that connects the figures. Um, and so, uh, for example, uh, Abraham was a father who was called upon to sacrifice his son. God told him, sacrifice your son on this mountain. And Abraham is about to do it. Uh, but God calls him off. Uh, God says, no, I, only, I was only testing you. I wanted to see if you would do what I asked you to do. Here's this ram instead that you can sacrifice. So Abraham was called upon to sacrifice his son. Well, in the New Testament, God is a father who sacrifices his son. And so there's an historical connection between them. Abraham, who was going to sacrifice Isaac, Isaac, God, who sacrifices his son. So that's more along the lines of typology. Uh, seeing a very close connection as opposed to just grabbing something out of the air, making it represent anything you want it to. Uh, the interesting thing is that Paul calls attention to this, and he even uses the same word that is used in the um, Genesis account of Abraham. Um, uh, um, God said to Abraham, because you did not spare your son, um, but you were willing to do what I asked you to do, but Romans 8 says, God did not spare his son and sacrificed him for us all. So you see that connection there between the two and yet a connection that has a difference. Uh, Abraham is the one who almost sacrificed his son. God is the one who did not spare his son, but offered him up for us all. So that's more where we come in with typology. Awesome. That makes sense. All right, you can keep going. Okay, sure. Uh, and then uh, maybe the last thing I'll mention here is that in some way, this allegorical interpretation, it kind of won the day over the more literal uh, interpretation and the typology. And uh, it went on into the Middle Ages. And um, in, uh, uh, in the early church uh, and in the Middle Ages, it was very common uh, for uh, the church fathers um, in those first, say, 12, 13, 14 centuries of the Christian church uh, to interpret things uh, allegorically and or typologically. Um, but they did it um, according to what's often been referred to as the four-horse chariot. Uh, they did their interpretation along four different lines. There was the literal interpretation there was the um, uh, more allegorical interpretation. Um, there was the what they referred to as kind of the moral interpretation. And then finally, there was uh, what they referred to as a kind of an eschatological interpretation. So, for example, uh, anytime you find um, Jerusalem in a passage in the Old Testament, literally, Jerusalem is that city in Israel where the Israelites uh, set up uh, their capital, a cap for the nation. Um, allegorically, uh, Jerusalem can be the church in the New Testament, uh, uh, the, the, uh, the new Jerusalem. Um, morally, each one of us can individually uh, be thought of as Jerusalem, uh, 
and we have to conduct our lives in accordance with what God God's will would be for uh, those who would live in in Jerusalem. And then finally, uh, eschatologically, we're looking forward to the new Jerusalem that will be established at the end of time. So that kind of four horse chariot drove interpretation, literal, allegorical, moral, eschatological. Um, however, that became a kind of a kind of an unwieldy uh, thing uh, to try to run every to, to, to try to run all your all your passages through. It, it, it was set up as as this as this way to interpret each passage, but after a while it got very cumbersome. So um, eventually, uh, those second, third, and fourth senses sort of uh, collapsed together. Uh, anything that you did other than literal was thought of as allegorical. So anyway, that's 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 yeah. that's how many of them saw Christ in the Old Testament back then. That, that's very fascinating. So um, on the allegorical idea, so um, on page nine of your dissertation, you said, mm -hmm. while these interpretations may seem allegorical to us, most of the fathers we have looked at, except perhaps the epistle of Barnabas, were being at least in their own eyes, fairly literal in their exegesis. They talked in terms of prophecy or promise and fulfillment rather than in terms of some arbitrary allegorism. And then you say, I'm not denying that they were allegorical, but rather that they did not perceive themselves to be so. When I read that, I'm thinking, okay, they they were being allegorical, but they actually thought they were being literal. Does that make sense? And is that what you're trying yeah, to say? Yeah, it, it does. Um, and uh, uh, this would be, I'm not saying this was characteristic for every church father. Um, I think it, 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 it is for quite, quite a lot of them, though. When they were... Um, interpreting a text allegorically, that is taking a literal text and interpreting it, it in terms of something else, um, they believed they were actually catching the intention of the text. In other words, they weren't trying to put an allegorical overlay on the text. Rather, they thought of themselves as discovering an allegorical overlay that was already there. So in that way, they thought of themselves, I think, as being more literal um, than, than we would normally uh, understand. So if, if they read Psalm 23, for example, um, where the psalmist says, Yahweh is my shepherd, and then they came forward to the New Testament and said, Jesus is the one who is the shepherd. Uh, their understanding would not be that they're coming up with a novel interpretation of that, but they're, they are recognizing an interpretation that is in some way already embedded in the text. God's intention was for people to read in that text, Jesus being the one who is the shepherd. So I think that's what's going on there. That's very fascinating. Very fascinating. Okay. So what would you say are the most popular views of seeing Christ as we move, you know, closer to us, you know, in the 20 and the 21st century year? Okay. Uh, well, um, I guess the first thing that I would need to say in, re in regards to that question is that that question almost presupposes a more um, evangelical uh, interpretive base. That is, there are many 
modern day scholars who would not see Christ in the Psalms at all. Uh, they would simply say, you know, these are ancient Psalms. Um, they don't, they were given to the Hebrew people uh, centuries before Christ. They don't have anything to do with Jesus. And any attempt to read Jesus into that Psalm or make the Psalm relate to Jesus in some way uh, is um, out of bounds. It's not, not correct. So uh, I, I think the first thing to say is that there are those who don't see Christ in the Psalms. However, among those who are, um, I'm going to say, more evangelically oriented, not just evangelicals, but even, even among some who would refer to themselves as liberal scholars and yet quite conservative, um, I think there are several ways in which they would, un, they would see Christ in the Psalms. The first one uh, is that um, for, for, for a number of evangelical scholars, they believe there is a literal prophecy fulfillment element in the Psalms. So you come to Psalm 22, for example, that starts off, My God, my God, uh, why have you forsaken me? And um, there are many evangelicals who would take a psalm like that uh, with all its various references that seem to be uh, very close to things that Christ suffered in his life and, and in his death and in his crucifixion. And they would say that um, uh, this psalm is prophetic, uh, that it, it is actually prophetically looking forward to Christ and that Christ is the fulfillment of that prophecy. Um, some of them would even go so far as to say that um, the psalm has no um, literal, or at least not a, not, not, not a completely literal meaning in its original intent. And so, for example, if, if you argue that, the, that David was the one who wrote the psalm, well, did these things ever actually happen to David? Uh, was, was, did David ever have his hands and feet pierced? Uh, was he ever, uh, did the things that happened in Psalm 22 to the psalmist, did they ever actually happen to him? And there are those who say, no, they didn't literally happen to him, but they did literally happen to Jesus. They would, so that's, that was, is one way in which they would say these Psalms are prophetic because there isn't, uh, at that particular time in, at, when the Psalm was written, there wasn't a literal fulfillment, but now there is one with Jesus. So you do have that tack. Another tack is what is often referred to as the census plenure approach in which a New Testament author takes a passage in the Old Testament and, and uncovers or discovers, or some would say uh, they are given a revelation as to how to interpret that psalm with reference to Christ. Now, this census plenary approach wouldn't deny by any means that the original psalm had its own literal historical, um, sociological context in the Old Testament. But they would argue that now the psalm, because of what happened in the New Testament with the birth, the life, the death, the resurrection, and the ascension of Jesus Christ, they would argue that now the psalm has a fuller sense, that now there is this sensus plenure, 
uh, Latin meaning fuller sense that attaches to that psalm. And um, there are several ways in which that sensus plenure approach is uh, laid out by various scholars. Uh, there are some who would say that in some way, God actually supernaturally brought the New Testament author to a place where they understood what they about something about the psalm with regards to how it how it's fulfilled in Christ, they would say that um, God in some way supernaturally revealed this to them. Um, uh, and, and in fact, I, I like to use the word zapped, that God zapped them, and now they understand what the song really means with this fuller sense. I don't think that's um, the case, though. I think it's rather that God, by his Holy Spirit, brought them to see, in very logical terms, um, they, they had reasons for why they saw Christ in the psalm and then uh, brought those forward. So they were enabled by the Holy Spirit, uh, by the inspiration of the Spirit, to see this fuller sense. I don't think they simply, that, that, that this Holy Spirit zapped them and gave them new data to work with. Rather, they began to see that these Psalms had meaning in particular in the light of the life and death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. So that's where this fuller sense comes in. And we have a lot of, uh, in my opinion, we have lots of hints about this uh, in, the, um, in the New Testament text. So those are, I think, the, the main ways in which uh, the Psalms are uh, interpreted by uh, evangelical scholars uh, today. Gotcha. Awesome. Okay, so um, one question. I mean, obviously you have prophecy and a lot of people would say, okay, that's really good evidence to believe in Christianity and all that. Um, but, you know, there's some people that, you know, don't think that the Psalms are prophetic or maybe that all the Psalms are prophetic or they only select few. So there's other views to take that you've mentioned. Do you think any of the other, any other views, like maybe typological, um, do you think those could be good reasons, like good evidence of the divine inspiration of, of the, you know, the Bible? Well, I, I think when you, when you talk about typology, I would actually even include that in that whole area of census plenure. Um, that is, a New Testament author looks at the life of Christ, and they go back to a to a psalm, and they find parallels. Uh, they find um, correspondences between the what's described in the psalm and what happens in the life of Jesus Christ. And that typology is part of seeing that fuller sense. So I think that's what happens there. In terms of prophecy and fulfillment, um, I'll just mention this. And, and um, uh, 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 there, there is certainly debate among um, scholars on this whole issue. But I more or less agree with my, um, uh, my dissertation uh, supervisor, uh, Trimper Longman, that probably when we look at the book of Psalms, we should probably understand that there are no Psalms that are purely prophetic. Uh, that is, there are no Psalms that simply say, okay, here's a prophecy and, and 
it's going to have a fulfillment one day. I don't think that's what's happening in the Psalms. Uh, rather, I would say, uh, and, and I'll, I'll give the, the reasons for this uh, a little bit later, but uh, I would say that um, if you want to talk about messianic Psalms, then as opposed to the older idea that there are maybe 10, 12, 15 Psalms that prophesy the Messiah, I think it's better to say there are 150 Psalms which look forward to the Messiah. And Jesus becomes the fulfillment of the entire book of Psalms. Not on a straight prophecy fulfillment line, but on a much more um, historical process kind of line, which I'll describe a little bit later. That's really, really cool. Okay, so yeah, go ahead and get into that. Um, what is your preferred way on looking at Christ in the Psalms? Okay, so um, when I began my um, dissertation work, I was fascinated uh, by an article that Bruce Waltke wrote. And the article was a canonical process approach to the Psalms. And this was his way of arguing, uh, and, I, and I think he is right, uh, though I do have some modifications of it, but his argument was that the entire book of Psalms is messianic. It has to do with, with the king in the Old Testament. And then, since Jesus Christ is the one who we regard as king in the New Testament, um, Jesus rightfully inherits the book of Psalms. So um, uh, Bruce Waltke was very much influenced by a British scholar uh, named uh, John Eaton. And um, John Eaton wrote a book entitled Kingship and the Psalms. And in this book, Kingship and the Psalms, Eaton argued that um, prior to his time, there were various scholars who identified what they referred to as, as royal psalms. Um, and a couple of these scholars in particular were Herman Gunkel and Sigmund Mowinkle. Uh, Gunkel uh, looked and said there are roughly about 10 royal psalms. That is, 10 psalms that mention the king, that refer to the king, and um, that that may have been been written by the king or for the king. Uh, Mowinkle came along and he doubled that number. He said there are about 20 of these royal psalms. Well, Eaton comes along in the mid-70s of the last century. He writes this book, Kingship and the Psalms, and he, his sustained argument all through the book was that 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 there are many many more royal psalms than had been uh, previously uh, suggested uh, by scholars like Gunkel and Mowinkel. Um, the first thing he did was to say, well, you know, half of the Book of Psalms, uh, roughly half of them, have a superscription at the very beginning of the psalm that says a psalm of David. Now, does David always mean the person of David? Maybe not. It might it might refer to, to the to the house of David, the lineage of David. Uh, it might refer to a Davidic uh, successor, such as Solomon or Hezekiah or, or Josiah or someone uh, like that. Uh, 
But what Eaton says, half of the Psalms in the book of Psalms have this heading of David, by David, about David. Half of the Psalms have this royal heading. So right away, we have this idea that the Psalms have a, have a royal connection. And then he goes on to say, when you read Chronicles in particular, uh, Kings as well to some extent, but Chronicles in particular, it talks about David and Solomon being the one who set up the temple worship. They're the ones who established everything and started it going. Uh, they're the ones who organized the, the singers in the temple. They're the ones who provided for the building of the temple. They're the ones who provided for the Levites to do their various work. Um, they wrote compositions to be used in the worship. And so Eaton says that set of data alone should guide us to recognize that the Psalms, the book of Psalms, in fact, the entire book of Psalms in that, in that regard, have a royal impetus or foundation to them. They were books that contained Psalms that were authorized by King David and or his successors to be used in the worship of ancient Israel. And then Eaton also said this, if you take a look at one of the royal psalms and what it says about the psalmist and those royal psalms, and then you take another psalm that doesn't actually mention the king, when you compare the language of those two psalms, that language is quite similar. And so Eaton says it's almost as if we're to understand that because the psalms that don't mention the king and the psalms that do mention the king are so close in their content, their ways of describing things, their ways of praying, their ways of petitioning God to do something, because they're so close, we ought to understand that even the psalms that don't um, uh, very directly mention the king, nevertheless, the psalms that don't, that, 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 that don't mention the king are like the ones that do. Therefore, that gives us another reason to believe that the entire book of Psalms has a kind of a royal foundation. Um, or to put that in another way, we're often, sometimes you'll hear the phrase that the book of Psalms was the hymn book of ancient Israel. And what Eaton would say, in addition to that is, it's not just the hymn book of ancient Israel, but is the hymn book that has the royal imprimatur. Many of the compensation in many of the compositions written by, about, or for the king, and therefore the book of Psalms has this royal stamp on it. It has to do with the king of Israel and the worship uh, that that the kings put in place. Well, when you come to the exile. And um, the kingdom of Israel comes to a close. The kingdom of Judah, in particular, um, comes to, a, to as it were, a, a finish, a, a ceasing point, a stopping. Uh, Judah is carried into exile. And then Judah comes back from exile to the land. They don't really have a king. 
And yet they keep singing these royal hymns. They keep singing these royal psalms. Why do they do that? And Walkie's answer to it is that they sing these songs in anticipation of the one who will come from the royal line of David and rightfully inherit those psalms. So when you come to the New Testament and you come to the person of Jesus, who is from the house and lineage of David, and see how he uses the Psalms. You look at what he does in order to um, explain his life and ministry uh, in terms of all of Scripture, but in particular to the book of Psalms. What we now have come to is that person from the royal house of David who has now come, he is the Messiah, he is the true king of Israel, the book of Psalms is his book, and he becomes the rightful prayer of the Psalms. Um, it's his book. And now, in solidarity with him, we continue to sing those psalms. We continue to pray those psalms because that book belongs to him and therefore it belongs to all those who were in solidarity uh, with him. So what uh, Walkie does in his article is that he uh, closes uh, by quoting uh, someone I'm, I'm sure either uh, you and, and or your audience have heard of, uh, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, and he um, quotes Bonhoeffer and says, the book of Psalms is the book of Jesus Christ in the truest sense of the word. So what I did in my dissertation was I took that article that Walkie wrote and I tried to run with it and elaborate it and, dis and describe um, just how much this idea of Jesus being the rightful inherit, inheritor of the Psalms, how much that really has to do with how we should re read the Psalms as Christians um, in um, the New Testament and in our current modern times. Um, maybe I'll stop there. Uh, there's a lot more that can be said, but I'll, I'll go ahead and stop there for a bit. Oh, cool. That's very fascinating. So, so for those that, you know, aren't are still a little skeptical. Um, I wanted to ask you, so you said one of the reasons why we think that, um, or we should conclude that, you know, the, all the Psalms are supposed to be messianic is because, um, you know, they're all similar. They all almost like a similar theme or, um, I don't know, maybe you can say the best word to describe it. Um, they're, they're written the same way, whichever. Um, which I think it's very true. Like they definitely have some similarity. Um, but like, why wouldn't, why not conclude that, you know, maybe that's why they're put together because, um, you know, they're just all similar and it's not because they're messianic or maybe they're similar because it's, you know, that's just how you wrote Hebrew poetry. Like, why, why, yeah, why not conclude yeah. that? Yeah. Good, good question. Um, and I think part of what, um, that there, there's a, there's a term that is often used to describe um, how similar the Psalms are. Uh, the term is uh, 
democratization. Uh, it's the idea that even if these, even if David was a was someone who sang these psalms, now other people are doing the same thing. Uh, they're also singing psalms, and so so you have, uh, for instance, you have um, lament psalms where we know the king is the person in the psalm who is lamenting, and yet you have other psalms where someone else is lamenting. Um, and so the, the idea is that in some way, David or this royal figure uh, has done something that the rest of the people can copy and, and do as well. Uh, so the, so this, it's become democratized. And um, I, I, think, I think that actually uh, is a good thing uh, to see that other people could, could, could write psalms on that same model, but it still goes back to the king. Uh, the, the, way, the reason they can do that is because they have a model set for them. They have a pattern set for them. Um, and so Augustine um, in, the, um, in the fourth century, um, he talked about what he referred to as a head um, body um, model of understanding the Psalms. And his idea was that what is true of the head is also true of the body. Well, Jesus Christ is the head. And Augustine regarded Jesus as uh, the speaker uh, in many, many of the Psalms, if not all the Psalms to a certain extent. But then he went on to say, since the head sings these Psalms, the body can sing these psalms as well. They can also voice the same complaints, the same laments, the same praises, even uh, for that matter. Um, so um, uh, that idea of the democratization isn't isn't a bad idea at all. But I still think it's a democratization that is founded on the idea that the king is the lamenter par excellence, uh, and uh, therefore that the body copies uh, their head and follows follows his lead. Fascinating. Yeah, that, that makes a lot of sense. So, um, so obviously, you know, you can talk about the general focus, but uh, I want to give you the, the, the most difficult questions for those listening so they can really understand your position. So, sure. um, so a lot of people are going to think like, okay, so how are like some passages, they just really don't seem to be messianic at all. Mm -hmm. I mean, just think of it, you know, verse uh, chapters, uh, Psalm 137, you know, the imprecatory Psalms, okay. where it talks about um, daughter of Babylon doomed to destruction. Um, and it says, happy is the one who seizes your infants and dashes them against your rocks. How can mm. that be messianic? Mm. Uh, good question. Um, there are a bunch of answers <laughs> that I can give you uh, to that. I know, um, you know, right away there's this sentiment there, you know, dashing babies against the rocks that don't doesn't seem to us, uh, uh, as someone would say, they don't sound very Jesus-y. Um, uh, and, and I understand uh, the, the the pushback there, but um, I would say several things in that regard. First of all, um, the psalm itself has to be examined as to what it is saying. Now, um, when it comes to the imprecatory psalms in particular, um, a lot of things can be said about them. You, you know, we could we could we could go into next uh, next month um, uh, talking uh, the, these things. But with that particular passage, uh, John Golden Gay, 
who te- who uh, I think he is now emeritus professor of Old Testament at uh, Fuller Seminary. Um, John Goldengay has written some fascinating stuff in his uh, work on the Psalms and his commentary on the Psalms. And what he argues is that we should not necessarily take that verse very uh, literally. Uh, that is that when we come to that verse, it is not so much um, it, it, it's, I mean, it may be a very graphic way of saying things in terms of taking the Babylonian babies and dashing their heads against the rocks. But, um, but, but he would argue that this is more of a, a hyperbolic, exaggerated way of saying, um, bring Babylon to an end. Don't let its world dominating uh, relationship to the world don't let the, that dominion be renewed. Um, don't raise up another generation of Babylonian tyrants. So that so that's the first thing you could do. You could look at that for sure and, and understand that there may be some hyperbole there, uh, exaggerated language um, that really is just simply a way of saying, bring Babylon's domination to an end. Um, the second thing that we can also uh, mention there is that when you come to the New Testament, um, we have not necessarily jumped from the Old Testament angry, mean um, God to a God in the New Testament who is all of a sudden kinder, uh, gentler, uh, all love and no wrath. That definitely is not the case. Uh, In fact, as um, many of the church fathers argued, and many Old Testament scholars today would also recognize, in some ways, the idea of divine judgment, um, divine punishment, uh, the eschatological um, judgment that comes at the at the end of the age, in some ways, we can say that is even more ratcheted up than it was in the Old Testament. Uh, that, in essence, the, the, the divine violence has become uh, even um, more explicit than it was in the Old. Uh, so, for example, in the Old Testament, um, there wasn't... Um, um, this, this would have to be nuanced quite a bit, but in the Old Testament, the whole idea of the afterlife is a very murky one. What happens when someone dies? Where do they go? Uh, do they go off to some other kind of existence? Uh, or um, when they die, is that it? It's a very murky thing. There are a, a, some passages in the Old Testament that suggest there's some kind of afterlife, after one dies. But those passages are very few, controversial, and when it comes to the, to the Old Testament, um, the passage, the, 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 the idea more than anything is that it seems that when a person dies, um, that's it. Um, so, for example, in one of the Psalms, the psalmist says to God, uh, please save me. Please keep me alive. And they supply a reason as to why God should keep them alive. And the reason is, 
if you don't keep me alive, if you don't come to my rescue, my tongue will lie in the dust and it can't any longer sing your praises. Well, that doesn't sound like um, that the, the psalmist has a tremendous hope in some kind of life beyond the grave. So um, when you come to the New Testament and all of a sudden Jesus and the apostles make reference to this place called hell, um, which actually uses the same term as the grave in the Old Testament. You know, the, the word Sheol is kind of behind it, but they make reference to a place of judgment, a, a place of, of a fire. Uh, that could be metaphorical, but it could be literal. So if we, let's say it was literal. Now we're talking about some kind of punishment that takes place in the afterlife, beyond the grave. So in some way, things are ratcheted up there in the New Testament. Um, and so I think it's important for us to, to see that as well. So uh, in any case, uh, I think that uh, I, I, there's much more I can say, but, but I, I think I should probably halt there. But just because we make that transition from the end of Malachi to the beginning of Matthew and going to the New Testament, uh, we haven't left, left the wrath of God behind. And in fact, in some ways, uh, many of the church fathers argued and many modern scholars argue as well that we've actually just doubled down on the idea that God will punish the wicked at the end of time. Yeah, that's very good. Um, we could definitely do a whole nother video on that for sure. Yes, for sure. <laughs> uh, so, um, so on page 367, you say, if the hermeneutics of the New Testament authors are to be in any way a guide for us, then it is necessary for us to understand that their perspective on the text was one that did not see itself limited to a simple understanding of the intent of the human author. At the very least, we must know that from their perspective, the text was not used by a single event. They correctly perceived that God had more to say in the text than the human author did, and they are to be our guides. So, um, you know, those were, that's kind of like commentary on Kaiser and Erickson. Can you talk about what exactly led you to that conclusion and, you know, what kind of, what can we draw from that? Yeah, yeah. Um, there's a lot, there's a lot of factors that go into that, but I think um, maybe I'll just start off by, by talking about um, what do we mean by meaning? Um, and when we look at a passage in the Old Testament that was written by a human author, that human author certainly meant something by what they wrote. Uh, they were trying to communicate. They were trying to be understood by someone. And anyone who comes along and reads what they wrote um, and does a good grammatical analysis, uh, a good contextual analysis, a good historical analysis, um, has a pretty good chance of understanding what they, what they said. The question then becomes, however, is the meaning of that text, is it exhausted by what was in the mind of the human author? And um, my response to that would be, first of all, it can't be because God is also the author of that text. And God is infinite in his knowledge. He is omniscient. He knows everything. And so 
anything that the human author wrote under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit as directed by God, whatever the human author meant, God means infinitely more than the human author does. So that means that whenever God inspired the human author to write something, God may have had more intentions for what that author wrote than simply um, uh, to apply to his own, to that human author's own day, own context, etc. Let me give one example of what I mean by that. Let's take Psalm 22, just the very first verse. Um, it starts off by saying, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And evangelicals have traditionally understood that God is the author of the entire Bible, um, that he is the author of the Psalms via the Holy Spirit, and therefore whatever the human author said there was inspired by God. And so almost certainly the human author who writes those words, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me, is referring to their own particular context. Uh, they're referring to a dire situation <coughs> that they are in, and they are asking God, why have you abandoned me? Why have you forsaken me? Why aren't you coming to my aid? As we know, Jesus repeats those same words um, several hundred years later as he is hanging on the cross. And he cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Well, when Jesus says those words, that goes, it, it, it takes those same words that a human author wrote, and now it takes them and applies them to a different situation. And the question that you had to ask then is, is the meaning what the human author wrote, and then Jesus simply takes those words and applies it to his own situation, or when God inspired the human author of Psalm 22 to write those words, did God intend for his own son to take those words and use them for his own situation several hundred years later? So if we are going to say that meaning is determined by authorial intention. If we're going to say meaning is what an author wants someone to take from what they said, well, when Jesus takes those words and uses them to describe his own situation, then when he does that, that is also the meaning of that text. It goes beyond what the human author meant and takes them applies them to, to the different situation, but that application was intended by God the Father. That is also part of the meaning, therefore, of that text. One of my um, uh, classmates in seminary, his name is Doug Ose, and I'll call his attention to the fact that I'm using uh, his, uh, 
his words here, um, has put this pretty eloquently. Uh, Doug O says this, One can be confident that God has foreseen every historical context, every cultural milieu, the societal mores of all generations, and each individual's personal circumstances, and that he intended the Holy Scriptures to be applied to all of them. Indeed, that he has placed application within the very nature of the Bible. Application is a dimension of meaning. So, if we're going to define meaning by saying what the author intended to communicate, then when God is the one who is the author, we can't restrict meaning to only what the human author originally meant. We have to also see it as it is fulfilled in the life of Christ. And frankly, even going beyond that, when we today read an ancient text, and because of what we read, we come to the conclusion, and I would say by the Holy Spirit illuminating things in our hearts, when we read those same words today, and we look at them and apply them in our lives and say, this is what was said, this is what we ought to do, well, what we ought to do as a result of our reading is part of what God intended to happen. It's part of the meaning of the text. So that's even carrying things to another dimension in our lives. But definitely in the life of Christ, we should see that happening there. That's so cool. So um, a little little bit off topic, but you sure. kind of hinted at already. Okay. So what would you what would you say is um, Jesus' purpose when he you know quoted Psalm there? Um, I think first of all um, that um, well. Um, I guess, first of all, not to be too um, cute about it, but when Jesus quoted those words and said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Um, I think the first thing that I want to say is he was asking God, why have you forsaken me? Um, he, was, he was asking a legitimate question. He was crying out in the grief and distress he was going through at that time. And he utilized the words of Psalm 22 to express that grief and distress. Now, there's a whole theological argument as to whether or not could God have actually forsaken his son? Doesn't that split up the Trinity? You know, they, they, that's the question that comes along. And I don't want to get into that. Um, that that's a whole other um, uh, dissertation. But I do want to say that, that um, again, I think that God inspired the human author to write those words that they might be utilized by Jesus Christ when he died on the cross, when he went to the cross and suffered for our sins. So, so I think the very first thing he's doing there is he's legitimately using those words to express his grief and distress. Um, beyond that, I think he's also saying... Um, I am the rightful inheritor of those words. They were originally the king of Israel's words. Um, they were David's words. Now they're my words. Um, I have inherited those words. 
And he is also, I think, by saying that, um, he is also pointing to the fact that here is this psalm of lament that he's quoting from that David wrote several hundred years earlier. That psalm of lament, as most lament psalms do, ends up on a note where you are praising God for the salvation that you know that he's going to bring to you. Uh, you praise him because of, um, of the fact that even though you are questioning God, you also are calling him God. You're saying, my God, my God. You're still saying there's a relationship there. And by quoting from Psalm 22, which has a praise section at the end, I think Jesus is affirming that there's going to be a vindication. There's going to be a, an answer uh, to his cries of grief and distress. Um, he is going to be raised up. And um, in fact, um, if you will permit me to do this, um, I want to just jump ahead to a passage in, in um, the book of Hebrews, uh, chapter 2. Verse 10 says, uh, In bringing many sons to glory, it was fitting that God, for whom and through whom everything exists, should make the author of their salvation perfect through suffering. So the whole idea here is that in some way, for, for Jesus to be the one who brings us to salvation, uh, who brings us to glory and presents us to God, he has to do this through suffering. And then he goes on in verse 11 to say, both the one who makes men holy and those who are made holy are of the same family. So Jesus is not ashamed to call them brothers. Now, that's an interesting statement um, that Jesus, in order to rescue us and redeem us, has made himself like us. And in making himself like us, uh, he has taken on our human nature. He has taken on our human um, uh, frailties. He has taken on our human condition, our weakness, our susceptibility to, to pain and suffering. He has taken all that upon himself. He has become fully human like us. And then the author says, in this way, then, he is not ashamed to call us his brothers. And then you ask the question, well, how do, how do we know that he calls us brothers? And here's the what the author says. He's, uh, he, uh, the author says, he says, that is Jesus, I will declare your name to my brothers. In the presence of the congregation, I will sing your praises. Well, that statement, I will declare your name to my brothers. In the presence of the congregation, I will sing your praises. That is a quotation from the latter part of Psalm 22. It's a quotation from the part of Psalm 22 that we refer to as the praise section of the psalm or the or the vow of praise. And then if you ask the author of Hebrews another question and you say, well, how do you know Jesus said that? Because it's not in Matthew or Mark or Luke or John. It's not in the Gospels. 
How do you know that Jesus says that? And here's what I think his answer would be. I think I, I think there would be two parts to the answer. His first answer would be this. The author of Hebrews knows how the Psalms are structured. He knows how they work. He knows that over 60 of the Psalms in the book of Psalms are lament Psalms, crying out Psalms, Psalms where the, where the psalmist cries out to God and says, help me. He also knows that practically every one, in fact, every one except one, every one of those lament Psalms ends up with the psalmist then being the one who, after having complained in the Psalms, saying, Lord, I'm hurting, I'm in distress, people are attacking me, will you please come to my rescue? Every one of those psalms then goes to the end of the psalm where the psalmist then says, I praise you for your deliverance, or I will praise you when you deliver me. I will offer my vows in your name. I will bring sacrifices to your holy temple and and, and thank you in, in sacrifice, in word, in song, whatever. So he knows that happens in every single lament psalm. Well, I think his reasoning is this, or at least part of it. If Jesus is the one who cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? If he is the one who laments the first part of Psalm 22, he also has to be the one who praises in the last part of Psalm 22. So even though there's no place in, in the Gospels where you find these words on Jesus' lips, the author of Hebrews says, those words are on Jesus' lips because Psalm 22 is his psalm. He made it his psalm by crying it from the cross. And now, here we have the Jesus risen from the dead. And just like the person in Psalm 22 cried out, so Jesus cries out, I will declare your name to my brothers. In the presence of the congregation, I will sing your praise. And so that's why I think um, we should understand uh, that um, Jesus owns the Psalms. Uh, they belong to him. They're, they're his Psalms. And he sings them in their entirety and asks us to uh, join him as well. That May, then brings me to another point that I just want to mention also. Um, and that is, there's, while I believe the whole Old Testament points toward Christ, the book of Psalms does something a bit different with regards to pointing to Christ. And that's this. We've talked about prophecy and fulfillment. Um, you'll let's say, go to the book of Isaiah or Jeremiah or Ezekiel or, or, or um, uh, Hosea, and you'll see a prophecy there about Christ, and then you'll come to the fulfillment of it. So, for the most part, there's a type, there's a prophecy that says this is what's going to happen, and then Jesus is the one who fulfills it in the New Testament. The book of Psalms is, is different. Not completely different, but for the most part, it's different. And that's this. 
Whereas the rest of the Old Testament makes prophecies about Christ and says things that are going to happen to him, the book of Psalms, as you read the passages where that psalm is fulfilled in the life of Christ in the New Testament, it's not so much that that psalm is about Christ, but that the psalm is by Christ. In most of the places where the psalms are applied to Jesus in the New Testament, it takes the words of the psalm and puts them in Christ's mouth. It makes him the one who is the singer of the psalm. So as opposed to these third-person prophecies about Christ in the rest of the Old Testament, the book of Psalms is first-person statements by Christ. And that makes, I think, a huge difference in how we understand those Psalms as we come to them and, and see their, their fulfillment uh, in the New Testament. Yeah, no, that's definitely really cool. Uh, that Hebrew passage is definitely good evidence for that position there. That's really cool. Yeah, yeah. Um, and that's just, you know, that's just mm -hmm. one of them. There are, are many more where where they, the New Testament author says, Christ says this, and they're quoting from the Psalms. That's really cool. So, um, as you mentioned before, you know, there's there seem to be possible references to Christ in the Psalms. At the same time, Jesus quotes from the Psalms often. Could you talk about some instances where you find Jesus' quotes to be interesting or of value? Sure, yeah. I'll just go through a, a bunch of uh, places there where we have these quotations um, uh, from the Psalms. Um, so, uh, and in every one of these, what I want you to, to notice and what I, want you, what I want your audience to notice is, again, that first-person character. So, um, just starting off here, um, in Matthew 13, um, there is a quotation from Psalm 78.2. And Matthew 13 is like um, a chapter uh, where Jesus talks in parables. And Matthew comments on that, and he says, Jesus spoke all these things to the crowd in parables. He did not say anything to them without a parable. So was fulfilled what was spoken through the prophet. And then he makes this quotation from Psalm 78, verse 2. I will open my mouth in parables. I will utter things hidden since the creation of the world. Now, notice that on the one, on the one hand, Matthew says, this is what the prophet said. But in this case, the prophet is a psalmist, and the psalmist is talking about himself. Jesus takes those words and now applies them to himself and speaks them in the first person. Um, we've already referred to how Matthew 27, 46, Jesus cites the words of Psalm 22, uh, verse uh, 1 or 2, depending on what you're, whether you're using the Hebrew or the English numeration, and um, says about the ninth hour, uh, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? So again, Jesus takes a, a passage from the Psalms. He speaks it himself. Later on um, in the crucifixion narrative, uh, Luke 23, 46, 
Jesus called out with a loud voice, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And that line, into your hands I commit my spirit, is taken from Psalm 31, verse 6. So Jesus again taking a psalm, citing it of himself in the first person. Or another example. Um, in John chapter 2, uh, we have the story of Jesus uh, cleansing the temple, you know, taking the, the 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 whip and going to the temple and driving out the the money changers and the cattle and, and overturning tables, etc. And then it says that later on, um, probably they mean after Jesus had risen from the dead and ascended to heaven. Later on, the disciples looked back at that experience. And they remembered the passage in Psalm 69.10 where the psalmist says, zeal for your house will consume me. And the apostles see in Jesus' cleansing of the temple, they see him fulfilling Psalm 69.10, zeal for your house will consume me. And again, notice that it's a first-person reference. It's, it's me referring to Jesus. Another great example, John 13, 18. Uh, this is where, this is the night before Jesus is crucified. And uh, Jesus um, says to the apostles, uh, I know those whom I have chosen. Uh, but he says, uh, uh, th th this is, again, the passage is in the context of, of sharing a meal with the uh, disciples. And he says, uh, this is to fulfill the scripture. He who shares my bread has lifted up his heel against me. Well, interestingly, um, this goes back to Psalm 41, verse 10. And Psalm 41 is about a man who is being slandered uh, by his enemies, and he's even being betrayed by a very, very close friend. And uh, now Jesus takes that same passage and applies it to himself. He says, I am the one uh, who has a friend who has shared my bread, and yet he has lifted up his heel against me. So Jesus is the fulfillment of that psalm. By the way, I just might uh, note this, and, and we, we could go into a long, elaborate discussion on this, but there was a um, tradition among the uh, ancient uh, Jewish scholars that the person being referred to in Psalm 41.10 was a person named Ahithophel, uh, who was a trusted advisor of David and yet betrayed him. And the interesting thing about Ahithophel is that he is one of only um, a handful of people. In fact, we could basically say one of only two people who committed suicide in the Bible. David's trusted advisor who betrays him later commits suicide. Jesus' trusted friend, Judas, um, who had a responsibility in the group. He was the treasurer. He betrays Jesus and then later on uh, commits uh, suicide. So um, 
for the sake of time, I won't go through the, the rest of what I have there, but in essence, um, most of the cases where the New Testament um, puts, uh, takes a psalm and relates it to the person of Christ, it does so by taking the words of that psalm and putting it in Christ's mouth. Whether we're talking about the Gospels in, in a narrative or Paul uh, talking in Romans or the author of Hebrews and Hebrews, they take the words of the psalm, put them in Christ's mouth, and in essence say, Christ is the one who speaks these words. That's really, really cool. So um, maybe you kind of already got into it, but what in your opinion is the most obvious, the most clear, uh, most prophetic psalms that clearly talk about Jesus before Jesus was even alive? Mm. Well, again, I guess uh, I had to go back to what I said earlier, that, that I agree with my um, um, doctoral supervisor, Trimper Longman, that there are no purely prophetic psalms. Um, but I think that among the psalms that are cl the closest um, to being um, I mean, I, 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 I'm not saying there are no prophetic psalms. I'm saying there are none that are purely prophetic. That is, there, there are no psalms that don't have their own immediate local historical context in Old Testament times. But certainly, um, I think uh, Psalm 2, uh, Psalm 8, Psalm 22, Psalm 41, um, Psalm 69, um, those those have multiple points of contact with the person of Jesus. And so um, I think that certainly there are Psalms where, where, there, where there's a heightened, I guess, uh, messianic connection. Um, but again, even, even in those Psalms, there is an immediate fulfillment. So it's more of a, it's, more, it's not so much a, a direct prophecy fulfillment but more, I think, along the along the lines of type fulfillment. So David is a type of Christ in the Psalms. I think yeah, that's that makes a lot of sense. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So those um, are those are the ones yeah. that, that that stick out. In fact, one of the things that I did in my dissertation was I took three Psalms, one that everyone recognizes being what they referred to as messianic, one that they. Um, only took one verse out of and said it was messianic. And then I referred to one psalm that is not quoted at all in the New Testament, and yet I still saw it as in some way as being pointing toward Christ. So I took Psalm 8, which um, almost everyone, uh, at least on the evangelical scale, almost everyone sees as, as, as uh, prophetic or, or uh, messianic. Uh, psalm 41 that only has one verse, but I think the entire psalm is is fulfilled in Christ. And then Psalm 129, which almost no, nobody uh, uh, seems to uh, um, attach to Christ. And yet I, I think I found how that it does, in fact, uh, apply to Christ and, and is fulfilled in his life. That's really fascinating. That's really cool. Yeah. So people definitely should check those out, all those different passages. And, you know, um, for a lot of people, this is going to be like a, a different way to look at prophecy yes. in, yeah. in the Psalms. So this should be um, really interesting to get people's feedback. Um, right. So yeah, definitely comment your thoughts, people. All right. So this is something that's stumped me for 
for quite a while, and I really okay. want to get your thoughts. And I really now you're did. Stop me. <laughs> I know. Um, it was in your dissertation that um, I really found it fascinating and it really explains it a lot. So, you know, in Matthew two fifteen, uh, Jesus quotes. Um, I need to pull it up to sure. give it its due respect. Uh, Matthew two fifteen. The writer of Matthew is, you know, talking about Jesus's life and, you know, how he's, you know, Herod and Egypt and, you know, Herod trying to kill the babies and all that kind of stuff. And then then it says this interesting verse. It says where he stayed until the death of Herod, talking about Egypt, and so was fulfilled what the Lord had said through the prophet out of Egypt. I called my son and, you know. It's pretty obvious that's a quotation from Hosea 11.1. 1. But the issue is that Hosea 11.1, 1, if you read it in its own specific context, looks like it has absolutely nothing to do with um, Jesus or a prophecy or anything like that. So yeah, yeah. tell us, what is what is the writer of Matthew doing here? Well, I think he's doing several things. Um, first of all, just to, to take the point you, that you've already made, in Hosea 11, 1, um, God is actually complaining about Israel. Uh, he says, out of Egypt I called my son, which is a pretty obvious reference back to the Exodus. You know, So God calls his people out of Israel. Um, he refers to, his, to the people as his son. And then he says, and the more I called to them, the further they went from me. Uh, they were evil. They were bad. They were, they were not responsible. They weren't faithful at all to God. And yet now Matthew takes that same passage to um, apply to this story where Jesus' parents uh, take him to Egypt to get away from this wicked Judean king. Um, they take him there to get, get away from, from Herod. And then when it's safe for them to come back, then that's referred to as being out of Egypt, I called my son. And so Matthew says, this is what the prophet said. So I think what Matthew is doing there is that he's doing a real um, interesting kind of typology. And the thing about typology is that you look for continuities, but you also look for discontinuity. One of the continuity here is that Jesus, in his life, but in particular here with regards to his birth and his early years, he is replicating an experience in the life of Israel. Um, Israel went down to Egypt. Uh, they were there 400 years. They began to be oppressed and when they were oppressed, God sent them a deliverer, Moses. And God, in essence, says, out of Egypt, I called my son. God brought them out of Egypt, brought them into the wilderness, and eventually to the promised land where they would uh, inherit the land and set up the kingdom of Israel and Judah. Um, Jesus, too, was taken down to Egypt, and then he was called out of Egypt to come back. And um, you also have the whole idea of, of danger involved uh, in the Exodus story. Uh, Pharaoh uh, wants to kill all the Hebrew 
uh, boy babies. He wants to kill the Israelites. In the Matthew narrative, Herod uh, wants to kill Jesus, and he ends up killing all the, the boy babies in the vicinity of Bethlehem. So you have those continuities. But you also have a huge discontinuity, and that huge discontinuity is that um, Jesus is taken down to Egypt in order to rescue him from a Jewish king. Israel is called out of Egypt in order to rescue them from an Egyptian king. So that discontinuity plays into the mix as well. And there's a what's happening here is that the nation of Israel, in particular the leadership, um, Herod, and later on uh, this was going to happen with, with other uh, Jewish leaders, are being put in a very bad light. Egypt and Judah have changed places. Uh, in the Exodus narrative, Egypt is bad. Uh, the promised land they're going to go to is good. Uh, but in the Jesus story, um, Egypt becomes a place of safety and security for this young child. Um, his danger is in the promised land. And so you have that going on there. Now, what I think we have here is part of an overall strategy on the part of Matthew to portray Jesus as the new Israel. And so, um, first of all, you have this thing about the Egyptian connection. But then right after this story about the Egyptian uh, uh, connection, the next thing that Jesus is going to is going to happen to Jesus is his baptism and his wilderness temptations. Well, the next thing after God called his people out of Egypt was um, the baptism in the Red Sea, and then being sent into the wilderness where they are tempted and tried for 40 years. Well, Jesus, the next part of the narrative after his, his uh, birth is that he is baptized, and then he is driven into the wilderness where he will be tempted uh, by the devil. And so what I think Matthew is doing here, he's not trying to suggest that there was this prophecy in Hosea 11.1 1 that would uh, point toward Jesus in a direct kind of, um, here's the prophecy, here's the fulfillment. But rather he's saying that here is this passage in Hosea that plays up on this difference between God's firstborn son, Israel, whom he rescued from Egypt, but then they turned away from him and they succumbed to all those temptations in the, in the wilderness versus Jesus, the new Israel, the new firstborn son, who is also called out of Egypt, who goes through a Red Sea experience in the baptism and then goes into the wilderness and instead of succumbing to the temptations, he passes the test. He replicates what the experience that Israel had in the Old Testament. He replicates it, but he does it righteously. 
perfectly. He is the new Israel. And so that's what Matthew is doing here. So it's not a it's not a matter of some kind of straight line prediction. In any case, um, what I um, when I uh, was teaching uh, every year, I called a I taught a course um, in biblical interpretation. And what I had my students do was this: I told them, "Okay, what I want you to do is I want you to read the first four chapters of the book of Exodus." And I want you to read the first two chapters of the book of Matthew. Um, or actually, sometimes I, sometimes I would say Matthew 3 and 4 as well. So read those first few chapters of Exodus. Read the first few chapters of Matthew. And come up with all the parallels and correspondences you can possibly think of. Um, even if you don't think it's valid, go ahead and write it down. And then go through them all. And eliminate the ones that you think, oh, okay, this is kind of iffy. But it's interesting how many parallels there are. Just for an example, here's one more. And, and this is kind of weird, but why are the Israelites in Egypt in the first place? Well, they're in Egypt in the first place because one of their ancestors, Joseph, had dreams. And because of his dreams, his brothers hated him, and they sold him to the Ishmaelites or Midianites, and he was taken down to Egypt. And then Israel followed, and then they had to be called out of Egypt. Well, why is Jesus taken down to Egypt? Because of Joseph, who dreams. And in fact, in Matthew 1 and 2, Joseph has four dreams in that passage. So is that simply um, a kind of a correspondence that uh, just happened to happen? Or was it in some way in God's design? Furthermore, the Joseph in Genesis who has these dreams and ends up being responsible for Israel going down to Egypt, his father is a man named Jacob. Well, Joseph, who is the so-called father of Jesus, is also a son of Jacob. So you have the slaughter of the innocents in both passages. Uh, in Exodus, you have Pharaoh being outwitted by the Hebrew midwives. In Matthew, Herod is outwitted by the Magi. There's just so many of these correspondences that you begin to see Matthew is not simply recounting history, but he's recounting history in a very masterful way, drawing out all the correspondences that he can between uh, Israel and Egypt and um, Jesus in the Nativity story in Matthew 2. That is so cool. That is so fascinating. I've always loved the study of Matthew. Yes, that's so awesome. Um, so last question. I don't want to keep you too long. So, sure. uh, so Jesus talks and uh, Jesus in John five, he talks about, um, maybe you can give us the background of what he's talking about, but he says, if you believe me, you would believe me for he wrote about me. But yeah. since you do not believe what he wrote, how are you going to believe what I say? And, um, he's talking about Moses. But Moses, yeah. like obviously Jesus wasn't alive during the time of Moses, and 
you know, maybe some of it's prophetic, but most of the text just seems like, you know, a, a historical text. So tell me, how could Moses be writing about Jesus when Jesus didn't exist? Okay. Um, good question. Uh, there's a lot of a lot of factors that go into providing an answer for the question. Um, and I'll just, I'll, I'll try to be as brief as I can with this. But I think the first thing we need to recognize is that um, even though you have this human figure, uh, Jesus, in the New Testament, um, he is also the Son of God. He's the second person of the Trinity. Uh, and as the second person of the Trinity, he is eternal. Uh, he existed before the foundation of the world. And so... Um, Theological, um, well, let's say, let's say theologians have various terms they use to describe the relationship between the persons and the work of the members of the Trinity. Um, and one of those terms is um, the inseparability of operations. And what that means is that anything that one member <coughs> of the Trinity does, the entire Trinity is wrapped up in. Now, it doesn't mean that, that they do the exact same things, but there isn't anything that one member of the Trinity does that is not in some way connected to the other members. So, um, almost certainly, I think Jesus is in some way putting himself back into the Old Testament because he was there in the Old Testament. Um, Moses spoke about Jesus because in some way uh, Jesus was actually there uh, in the Old Testament. Now, we can also say that Moses spoke prophetically. We can say that Moses... Um, looked down through history and saw Jesus, and that's what Jesus is, is talking about there. But there is a, a long tradition that says, since Jesus is the Son of God, since he is the second person of the Trinity, since Father, Son, and Holy Spirit act in concert, um, that any place where one of them acts all three are in some way there and acting and present. And so when we're told that God gave the law in the Old Testament and gave Moses the Ten Commandments, well, God is not just one person. God is three persons. God is Father, Son, and Spirit. Now, certainly one person may be more, um, may, may be, um, uh, has, has a, a, a larger role in any one particular action, but we still have the idea that that anything that the, that the Father does, the Son and the Spirit are in some way there too. So when, whenever God gives Moses the law, that's also Jesus involved there as well. Now, um, many of the early church fathers believe the same thing. Uh, they argued that because Jesus is the Son of God, that wherever the Father acts, Jesus acts too. 
and wherever Jesus and the Son act, the Holy Spirit is there also. So um, let me just show you this. This is this is fascinating. Um, I think most of us like Christmas time, and we like Christmas carols. Well, one of my two favorite Christmas carols is O Come, O Come, Emmanuel. And um, you know the song, the very first verse says, O come, O come, Emmanuel, and ransom captive Israel that mourns in lonely exile here until the Son of God appear. Rejoice, rejoice, Emmanuel shall come to thee, O Israel. Well, this is actually one of seven verses uh, that have come down to us from ancient times in the church. Each one of these seven verses of, of this hymn, usually we only have maybe three or four verses in our hymn books, but they're actually seven verses. Each one of these hymns takes um, a different title of Jesus and talks about that. Um, uh, uh, there's, a, there's a verse built on each one of these titles. So the first verse is, O come, O come, Emmanuel. We know that Emmanuel is a title of Jesus. Uh, the second verse says, O come, thou rod of Jesse. And you go back to Isaiah 11, where we're told that there's this the root of Jesse, uh, and that's related to, to the Messiah. Uh, and so that second verse does the same thing. Um, o come, thou dayspring. O come, thou key of David. Uh, key of David was a, a favored term in the ancient church to refer to Jesus being the one who opens up David, that is, brings David forward uh, as David's greater son. Or, uh, O come thou wisdom from on high. Uh, Jesus was in the ancient church referred to as the, pers as the personification of wisdom, going back, for example, to Proverbs chapter 8. Now, here's the last verse of this hymn, O come, O come, Emmanuel. Now catch this. O come, O come, thou Lord of might. Again, the Lord of might is a term that was used in the ancient church to refer to Jesus. But now notice what it says. O come, O come, thou Lord of might, who to thy tribes on Sinai's height in ancient times didst give the law in cloud and majesty and awe. Notice that. Here is this Christmas hymn, and the last verse of this Christmas hymn refers to Jesus as the Lord of might and says, in ancient times, you gave the law in cloud and majesty and all. So this reflects the fact that throughout church history, but especially in the early church, there were those who argued that Christ was truly present in the Old Testament and that he was at least involved in giving the law to the Israelites. Um, several ancient church fathers, uh, Irenaeus, <coughs> uh, Barnabas, uh, Hippolytus, um, Chrysostom, and Augustine, uh, famous Augustine, all of them in some way believed in what A.T. Hansen has referred to as the real presence of Christ in the Old Testament, that, that because Jesus is the Son of God, 
the second person of the Trinity, whenever you go back to the Old Testament, wherever you are, in some way, Jesus is there uh, because he is the second person of the Trinity. He is omnipresent. He is there uh, when the Father does what he does. So, um, as I mentioned earlier in the broadcast, uh, I wrote this commentary on Leviticus. And one of the things that I said in the preface of the commentary is that I am convinced that whenever we read the legal portions of the Torah, um, the laws that are given in Exodus and Leviticus and Deuteronomy, we're not just reading the laws uh, that were uh, put into effect by God the Father, uh, though we certainly are, but God the Son is there too. And so I've argued quite strongly uh, that uh, we have to understand that Jesus is, um, just by virtue of being a member of the Trinity, he is the author of the entire scripture, including Leviticus. That's really cool. Uh, that definitely puts some extra context into, you know, when Jesus talks about, you know, I didn't come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. Yes. That's yeah. definitely cool. Yeah. Um, yeah. Well, this has been so cool, and I really appreciate you taking all this time. Um, so you mentioned your book. I think you mentioned your website. There'll be a link in the description. Is there any other places where you would like to refer people to? Um, uh, I didn't refer. Yeah. I didn't mention the website, but I'll just go okay. ahead and give it. Uh, it's, um, of course, www. And then um, the recapitulator, all one word, T H E. R-E-C-A-P-I-T-U-L-A-T-O-R.com, therecapitulator.com. And uh, actually, the site is dedicated to, um, to uh, first of all, it's dedicated to Jesus um, because he is the recapitulator. In fact, that's what we're talking about uh, in the book of Matthew. When Jesus replicates or recapitulates the experience of Israel in his own life. So that's where part of that comes from. But it also goes back to the, one of the persons that I mentioned earlier, uh, Irenaeus, I believe. And uh, Irenaeus, who was, uh, who was uh, most famous in church history for this understanding of recapitulation, that Jesus reca recapitulates, recaptures, relives, re replicates the experience of Israel in his own life. And by doing so, he does what Old Testament Israel wasn't able to do, lived a life of faithfulness to God, and then from that life of faithfulness, he goes on to uh, become the sacrifice uh, for sin on the cross. That's so cool. Well, Dr. Shepard, thank you again for com coming on here to talk about all this. I know a lot of people got a lot out of this. This has been so great. Uh, I hope you have a great rest of your day. Thank you very much. Blessings yes, on sir. you.